Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sin. Such a pesky, annoying word. We barely use it anymore, except at church. Sin makes me think of God. Specifically, it makes me think of judgment. Sin would mean that there's a giant moral absolute out there, and that I'm accountable. I might have to beg for forgiveness. I'm probably going to be punished. The dictionary says, sin is a transgression of divine law. Right. Which means there's a divine person or God that has a law. And the dictionary continues. Any act regarded as such, as transgression, especially a willful or deliberate violation of some religious or moral principle. Right again, sin means, sin means I did it on purpose. It was willful. Sin means I knew I was wrong when I did it. And that doesn't make me feel very good about myself. In fact, if I commit a sin after a while, I think I'm a bad person. And so we stay away from that word. We much prefer the word mistake. I made a mistake. Let me read you the definition of mistake. A mistake is an error in action, calculation, opinion, or judgment caused by poor reasoning. You know, uh, poor reasoning. I, I, oh, I, just, I just wasn't thinking straight. I, or carelessness. Oh, oh I, didn't, I didn't see that. Or insufficient knowledge. Well, I didn't know any better. This is a much better word. Because when you catch me, I can say, oh, my bad, my bad, my mistake. If you're having an argument with your husband or your wife or your parents and they get a little forceful, you can say stuff like, okay, so I made a mistake. Is that the end of the world? Try that. It actually works. Or, or try this. Okay, look, I made a mistake. Nobody's perfect. The assumption is you can't be too mad at me because it was just a mistake. I didn't know any better. There's a big difference between a sin and a mistake. A mistake, I don't really have to ask you to forgive me. I can just say, I'm sorry, can we just move on? A sin, that's a different thing altogether. Here's the biggest difference between a sin and a mistake. If everything I do wrong can be scaled down to where it's just a mistake, that makes me a mistaker, which means I don't have sin. I'm not a sinner. If I'm not a sinner, I don't have any need for a savior. If you're just a mistaker, then all you have to do is do better. Okay? Mistakers, all they have to do is try harder. They just have to, to, to break a nasty habit or, or be more consistent. Mistakers just have to try harder the next time. But if I'm a sinner, that seems to be more fundamental to who I am. If I'm a sinner, then simply trying harder is not going to get it done. Because I probably owe somebody something, big time. I probably deserve something I don't even want to know much about. If I'm a sinner, trying harder isn't going to help me. If I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Now you might be able to convince me that you only made a mistake. 
But the truth is, when the lights and the music, the television, when all the distractions are off and you're just looking at yourself in the mirror, you know better. You know that what you did was intentional. You just, you just didn't think you'd get caught. Not only did you do it on purpose, you've done it before. And, and not only did you do it before, you're hoping you can do it again. Yeah, when somebody brought it to your attention, you were able to pass it off, but you know in your heart that what you did was more than a mistake. It was not unintentional. It wasn't because of poor reasoning or carelessness or insufficient knowledge. You knew what you were doing. It wasn't a mistake. It was way deeper than that, was it not? Which is why you feel guilty. No one feels guilty for a mistake. Now, you might feel bad and all that, but not guilty. You feel guilty for sin. And the thing is, you know that feeling. So do I. It's a real feeling about sins, not mistakes that you've really done. And if all that wasn't enough, Jesus comes along and whacks the hornet's nest on this whole matter. Okay? In his ministry, he taught two opposing ideas that seemed like they should not come out of the same person's mouth. He came along and made everybody feel worse about themselves. Now, during his time, uh, teachers were busy lowering the bar, busy dumbing down God's law, saying, it's not so hard to be godly. It's not so hard to be righteous. God was not as serious as maybe you thought he was. But Jesus comes along and he pushes that bar right back up again and higher and said, no, 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 no. It's worse than you thought. You, you thought you were kind of bad? You're really bad. You thought you were good? You're not good. You thought you were righteous? You're not a righteous person. Nobody's good enough to be in God's good favor. But then he also came along and said, oh, by the way, God loves you just the way you are. The, the, the people were confused. Wait, wait, wait a minute, which is it? Either I'm terrible or God loves me. Jesus responded, it's both. You're terrible and God loves you. You're worse than you thought. And God loves you way, way more than you imagine." This was strange to people. Those who wanted to be mistakers did not like Jesus because he made them feel bad. But the people who knew in their gut they were sinners loved him because they were honest enough to look in the mirror and say, he's right. It is worse than I thought. If there's any hope in the world for me, it's not because I'm going to do better, promise harder, commit more, or discipline myself. If there's hope for me, a sinner, it's not going to be through my efforts. I need a Savior. In Matthew 5, 17, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's saying, if, if you think I'm here to water things down, to get rid of those laws, forget that. He goes on, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
In other words, if you thought I came to dumb down those extreme laws to lower the bar so that you can get over a bit easier, no, 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 no. I've not come to dumb anything down. I'm here to fulfill all that was taught in the Old Testament. Now back then, there were people who poured over those biblical laws. They were called the Pharisees. Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Wow. And while the crowd was letting that settle over them, Jesus gives them some specific examples. Now there's a bunch of these examples, but I'll just go straight. I'm going to go straight to the one we looked at last week. In Matthew 5:27, Jesus says, "You've heard it said, do not commit adultery." And the crowd is like, "Yep, that's wrong. We've not committed adultery. We're good people." Verse 28, Jesus continues, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. (laughs) What? (laughs) The people would have said, Give me a break. We're leaving. We're leaving. You just called us all, well, not me personally, but you just called all my friends here adulterers. You've just called every man that looked on a woman lustfully an adulterer. You're saying... That if we even think about it, imagine it, look lustfully at a woman, then we are guilty of adultery? Do you realize, Jesus, that you just condemned all men? Can we take you seriously? Who can be that good? Who could live their whole life as a man and never look at a woman lustfully? If that's the standard, if that's what it takes to get into heaven, none of us are going to be there. God will be in heaven all by himself because nobody is that good. Jesus says, "Um, I'm not done. I'm not done. You've heard that it was said, he pours it on more. Love your enemy. Brother, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And now, by the way, the Bible nowhere says hate your enemy. But the Pharisees had added that. They added that in because, I mean, who can love everybody? Especially those who do you dirt, your enemies. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. More reflections from the people. (laughs) Jesus, prayer, I don't even pray for my neighbors. You're telling me God expects me to pray for my enemies? To pray for the people who persecute me? That's the standard? That's what God gets excited about? You're telling me I'm an adulterer because I have lustful thoughts. And then you say that I'll never please you because I don't love my enemies. That's what it takes to be righteous. Good grief. There's nobody righteous but God. Jesus smiles and says, I know. That's my point. You came to this sermon supposing you were just a mistaker who needed to do better. I'm here to convince you you're a sinner and there's no hope for you if it depends on your effort and your righteousness. Now, here's an amazing thing. Throughout the Gospels, the people who were the most convinced that they fell into this category flocked to hear Jesus. They loved him. They were nothing like him and they liked him. 
The tax gatherers, the prostitutes, the men and women who were condemned by society as being outright obvious sinners, they loved to be with Jesus because he had these two messages. Message number one, you're a sinner, you're in trouble. Message number two, God loves sinners and sent a savior on their behalf. Message number one again, you're hopelessly lost. Message number two, God sent me to find you. This was his message. Now for the rest of my sermon here, I want to talk about what the message of Jesus does. Three things that it does. First, it radically changes your relationship with God. See, because until you embrace the fact that you're a sinner, you're not going to be open to embracing the fact that God sent you a Savior. I don't care if you've been in church many, many times. The gift of a Savior does not impact your soul until you first really believe that you're a sinner. If you're not, if you're just a mistaker, then you will certainly regard Christ as no more than an inspirational speaker who gives tips on how to do better. And the application, you'll think, is for you now to do better on your own. You'll pay back your debt to society or to God. Or you'll break the bad habit. One way or another, you'll make yourself right. That's what you'll think. It's all different, however, when you're a sinner. Because then you understand that you are under a real weight of guilt and condemnation that you cannot pay back. Further, you are in the grip of a dark, malevolent power that you cannot get free of. You need a savior. You see that your condition is so desperate that only the Son of God himself, being crucified, is sufficient to pay the price for your guilt debt and set you free from it. By rights, of course, it should be you, the guilty one, suffering under condemnation. But out of sheer love for you, radical, radical love for you, the Son took all your condemnation, took it himself, crying out as he took your condemnation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a cry. What did it mean? That in the place where sinners ought to be, Jesus was being forsaken on that cross, being punished with the punishment that should have been ours. But now, we're free of it because he has taken it in agony for us. He bore it for us. Because he took it, no condemnation remains for us. As Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation, none, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're loved, we're blessed now, forgiven, freed. So understanding that you're not merely a mistaker radically changes your relationship with God. Turns out he's not just your instructor. He's your lover and savior. It also, secondly, radically changes your relationship with yourself. Your attitude inside changes. How so? Because when you believe yourself to be a sinner, it pulls the rug out from under the tendency to seek for artificial importance. I, I'm trying to find words to say this. We, 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 
we have a tendency to seek for artificial importance, but when you know you're a sinner, it, it, that kind of put, gives the kibosh to that. So listen, we, we, we all need to know that we matter, that we have worth. We, we need to know that our lives and persons are important. That is a legitimate felt need. However, when you're a mistaker, you cut yourself off from where this need is actually met. <laughs> I realize that the popular wisdom today says that no, it's, it's those who think of themselves as sinners who damage their sense of worth. Ironically, however, this is exactly wrong because it's the mere mistakers who do this. How so? Because the mistaker thinks he's not so bad and can base his worth, therefore, on his own achievements or something like that. Achieve, achieve, achieve. It's, it's, it's why we, we don't just work hard. We drive ourselves in work. We got to achieve it. My worth is at stake. And we drive our kids in sports, in scouts, in school, in after school. We think they've got to have achievements if they're going to have worth. Because we think that about ourselves. In fact, perhaps our children are our achievements and thus our worth. And so we're driving them so we have worth. <laughs> the thing is, though, our achievements and supposed worth, your, can, your achievements can go up but they can equally go down or be reevaluated and criticized by other people, by the boss, by the neighbors, by the admissions board, by the coach, by attempting to build self-worth on achievement. Mistakers build their value on sinking sand. No wonder there is so much anxiety. Because what is your real worth? Your real worth is what God was willing to pay for you, namely the life of his own precious son. That's a shocking, amazing price to pay, to have you. You matter. You are of infinite worth. However, only sinners ever believe and receive this for themselves because only they believe they need this God-provided Savior. The mistaker never really thought he needed saving and so is left in ignorance about his worth, always seeking for it where it cannot be securely found. But believing from the heart that you are a sinner, a sinner saved by grace, radically and securely changes your inner attitude about yourself, and it gives you a security in being loved that sets the, sets the table for what comes next, which is what? Well, the third thing that Jesus and his message does is it radically changes your relationship with other people. First, it changes your relationship with God. Second, it changes your relationship with yourself. And third, it changes your relationship with others. How? It opens up your capacity to share radical love with them. Yeah, that will never happen if you don't start with the conviction that you're a sinner. When you think of yourself as someone who, at worst, sometimes makes mistakes, then it's only too possible to regard yourself as the most important actor on stage, the star, and to feel justified in looking down your nose at others. Content in your imagined moral status, you can feel justified in talking scornfully to that moron in the parking lot 
or even talking to your spouse with that same tone of voice. You go about regarding the needs of you as more important than the needs of them. But this attitude is going to choke your ability to love. Why? Because love, listen to what love is. Love is counting somebody else's needs as more important than your own. Love is counting others more important than your own interests or your own comfort. That's what love is, the love that Jesus teaches. Give to the one who begs from you, he said. Don't give the beggar a face palm. You've got to be more engaged in that. And, and don't cut someone off relationally. If they take your tunic even, don't say, I'm done with this guy. No, Jesus said, give him your cloak as well. Keep loving if they insult you. Even, even striking you on the cheek. Don't retaliate in a rage. Saying, you know, do you know who you've insulted? In God, you can be more secure than that. Don't stop loving them. Offer them your other cheek. Who knows? Love may change things, and they'll give you a kiss on that other cheek. Keep loving. Lofty pride will never lead to love. But the path of the lowly sinner will. The lowly sinner saved by an amazing love, saved by an amazing grace, secure in the love of God. Lowly in heart, yet secure in infinite love. You will find power to love even your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The year was 1948. The place was the town of Sunchun in Korea, near the 38th parallel. A Korean pastor, Yang Wan's son, was on his feet in the courtroom, concluding his speech there with the following words. He said, I thank God that he's given me the love to seek to convert and to adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. What was he talking about? During the Korean War, a band of communists from the north, like north of the 38th parallel, had taken control of the town for a brief, brief period and had executed Pastor Son's two older boys, Matthew and John. They died as martyrs, calling on their persecutors to have faith in Jesus. When the communists were driven out, Chai Son, a young man of the village, was identified as the one who had actually fired the murderous shots. His execution was ordered. It was then that Pastor's son stood to request that the charges be dropped and that Chai's son be released into his custody for adoption. Rachel, the 13-year-old sister of the murdered boys, also testified before the court to support her father's incredible request. Only then did the court agree to release Chai's son he became the son of the pastor and a believer in the grace of Jesus Christ. Question. In this true story, who do you identify with? The point of what I've been saying is that as a sinner, you and I 
must identify with Chai's son, the murderer deserving death. But then realize that to save you, God the Father sent his own son to be executed in your place so that you could be set free, adopted in baptism, and go home as his own son or daughter, loved by him. When you believe that, as Pastor Young Wan's son did, then you also will discover an amazing power to love, love even your enemies, as he did. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus for life everlasting. Amen.